Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Victor Yako. He's a UX designer. Is that, did I get the job title right? Actually, I'm a researcher. I can't claim any design skills, but um, I just give people the information they need to make the nice design. So, so UX researcher then? Yes, and I can describe that in more detail if you'd like in terms of what that actually is. Let's jump right into that. All right, cool. So what I do is actually work with the people who are going to be often the end users or the stakeholders who are involved in a product um, to find out more information on how to make it usable and useful. So I don't do any design. And I think that to some extent that's a luxury not a lot of people have. I've, I've heard of a lot of positions where designers are tasked with doing their own research. So, you know, you come up with a workflow, you should go out and do some usability testing. Well, where I've been in a position has always been that I can do the research and working in a team with designers and developers um, use the information that I find to create recommendations, but then they'll actually create the wireframes and visualize the workflow and um, do the visual treatment and everything else. So I get to do a lot of interviewing, usability testing, when the budget is there, contextual inquiry where you actually go in to the workplace or wherever somebody's going to be using a product and sit with them while they live their daily life and ask them questions about why they do things the way they currently do and try to think of how you might insert yourself in a way that makes their life easier. Um, And my background is in research and psychology. So to be upfront, I'd be a terrible designer. Like that's not what I would ever, no one would want to pay me to be a designer. Um, Giving advice to designers based on research, though, that's what I can be paid to do. Um, And so I have a PhD. My background is in psychology and communication. I know a lot about what makes people tick, and I know a lot about how to design studies that can help us figure out a little bit more. Um, Particularly right now, um, my focus is all digital design, um, but in the past I actually used psychology and communication to study people who were visiting places like zoos and science centers to try to figure out if they were actually learning any of the I, uh, the things that the zoos and aquariums and science centers want people to learn along with thinking giraffes and elephants are very uh, amazing creatures. They actually want you to walk away with some lessons learned and maybe even uh, some behavior change that you'll consider in the future. Like don't tease the gorilla. Absolutely. Although I think that my understanding, especially with younger children, is a lot of them walk away with the message, it would be really cool to own a gorilla. (laughs) (laughs) That that may may be a bad end result. Yes. But yeah, not even don't tease the gorilla, but actually like don't buy product X (laughs) because it promotes destroying gorilla habitat in the wild. So that's actually like the bigger message that a lot of zoos have um it's just a question of are people walking away from those experiences with that or is it just like that animal in captivity is really cool so back to psychology and ux you actually have a book on this coming out i do design for the mind appropriately enough um it's coming out hopefully in the next month or two i am at the stage where i've written the complete manuscript and submitted it and i'm working with a copy editor and we are up to having finished 
chapter 8 out of 10 with copy edits. So all it's got to do after that is typesetting and whatever else magic happens to have a physical book come out and also an ebook. It's currently available. Um, a lot of publishers, I know, I think um, Peach Pit and um, O'Reilly as well as Manning offer early access so you can see the work as it's being created, which is a little bit uncomfortable because that <laughs> could be unnerving yeah yeah i mean i am not the most grammatically con- like i don't necessarily write in perfect grammar uh first drafts but they exist out there if you purchase the book now you would get access to that as well as then as soon as the final copy edited versions are available you get get that so it's been a fun experience my first book and hopefully we were uh chatting a little bit before I came on that it's not my last, but we'll see how it goes. Um, and it was, is there an easy link where people can see the pre-order stuff or should I just drop it in sure. the show notes? Um, you can pop it into the show notes, but if you go to manning.com and then um, slash books slash design for the mind with a hyphen in between each word, um, you could find it there. Or if you go to my website, victoryako.com i've got links to it everywhere because it's you know if you if you look at that that you'd think that's all i'm doing is writing this book <laughs> the only thing this guy wants to talk about is he's writing a book um so it should be easy enough to find but it's a manning publications book so if you go to their website it's under their meeps which is manning early access p something all right not- oh that's what meeps i i yeah okay i've seen that a lot of times and i've never realized that's what it stood for because I'm not quick. Um, <laughs> so there is something else that you talk about quite a bit. You've, you've spoken about it on Vox and you've posted on Medium. And it seems to have been a major part of your life for the last few years. And that is alcoholism. Yes. And uh, it's, it's nice to talk to someone who has both recognized their problem and is in recovery and willing to talk about the whole thing. Well, thank you. And yeah, that's definitely actually I would say I have started talking about that more than I've been talking about psychology and design, which <laughs> talking about psychology and design was what, what allowed me to springboard into talking about alcohol actually. Um I yeah, I stopped drinking like you just said. It's been a couple years. I'm coming up on it'll be two full years in April and as part of that coming on this show and other other things that I've been trying to do to promote um, awareness of, of alcohol and particularly alcohol in the workplace issues is in honor of this uh, two years of sobriety. But, but even beyond that, just something I feel like is an obligation. Once I sobered up, um, my workplace wasn't causing my drinking issues, but once I sobered up, I became super productive and I started achieving goals and in terms of the book that I'm writing that was a lifelong dream I had of of being a published author in terms of writing a book and so none of that would have been possible when I was consuming alcohol the way I was and so after I was sober for a year I decided the only way that I can really be successful at this is by starting to talk about it because I looked around and I saw particularly in design and in technology, that we have this 
culture where alcohol use is heavily promoted. I won't say any, nobody shoves alcohol in your hand and makes you drink it. No, but there was a time when a beer in the workplace was a taboo. Yes. And now it's, it's, I think you said, it. I think it was in the box post. You said it's part of the culture. Now you're expected to have a keg in the office. Absolutely. That's what, that's like the differentiator. We're not stuffy government employees. We're not, you know, business people that have to take it to the bar. We can actually have it here in the office. And that's when we're showing our, showing our cool space off to clients. We're going to say, Hey, you know, we have a keg in the back and a beer fridge and that that's what makes us young and hip and, and also very edgy designers. Um, so while that's not a hundred percent true, I, I think that that can become the perception. And certainly when you're in a situation where you say the word taboo, it's the opposite of taboo. Now it, it can become problematic. And if you have a problem, it can certainly exacerbate that when nobody's going to question it when it's noon or 1 or 2 p.m. and you have a beer at your desk. They don't know if it's your first or your fifth and you're just working on on your buzz for the evening on the company dime. And for me, that was my problem. You know, It wasn't just happening at work. It was happening in all areas of my life. I was a full-fledged alcohol abuser, alcoholic, whatever you want to call it, that it broke my life to pieces and smashed all the good things. And the only thing I had was my job and I was barely functional feeling at that. I wasn't getting in trouble or anything, but I was certainly using my access to alcohol at work to also complement my ease of access to alcohol outside of work. And so when I hit a year, Brett, I was like, I have started doing all these good things. By the time I was a year sober, I had written around 30 articles for different publications in the design field, like Smashing Magazine and A List Apart, about the psychology of design. And I had gotten a book deal. And I had experienced so much success. I received a huge promotion at work. And nobody knew nobody knew what was going on because other than those who were the very closest to me, nobody knew I had this issue. And so I looked at my life and how great it was at one year sober, and I thought – this really isn't right for me to enjoy this success and be quiet because part of my success is that I'm writing and I'm being very public in what I'm saying. You know, I want people to read my work. I want to be exposed. So if I want to have this voice, I need to start using it in a way that's positive for people who are in the same situation as me. I would have never written a book. I would have never written multiple articles if I was – staying drunk. And what that means is it's very possible the person next to you could be just as productive or be just as satisfied with what they're doing in life, but they have this problem they're hiding. And potentially the culture of your workplace is actually supporting them having the problem. And so let's start talking about this. Number one, because surprise, surprise, people who are just like you, me, have this issue. Um, and then we need to think about what small changes because there really isn't large changes that are necessary. I think very small changes in how we talk about and how we organize events and how we talk about our office culture can lead to some really supportive environments for people that are either experiencing a problem or are sober or are one of many, many, many people who have lots of other reasons that they're staying away from alcohol and that that's why I wanted to start writing and talking about 
sobriety and about workplace culture and alcohol. So one of the things I, I myself have, I, I'm an addict, you know, I think, I think you've been to AA enough, I'm sure to understand that it's not the alcohol really. That's the problem, right? You know, it's, it's a sickness. It's, there's something innate, whether it's an imbalance or whatever theory you want to subscribe to something innate that makes you, they say allergic reaction to drugs and alcohol, um, unable to stop once you start. And it's mm -hmm. something that goes for the rest of your life. Like you're never going to be fully safe from it. Um, barring having an extremely good network of support. So right. for a person like that in the workplaces that you're describing, it can almost seem taboo not to drink. You can feel, uh, and, and while a normal person may not see it that way, they may be perfectly comfortable not having a beer at their desk for someone who, who, who has that personality, it almost feels like you're being pressured to just by having it accessible. So what do you think that these hipper workplaces with this environment could do differently? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, but also I want to say that your description there was dead on, and so I'm going to need to either steal it or have you present with me whenever <laughs> I start talking about alcohol because I think that you really nailed something there that I've been struggling to process, which is people who don't have a problem don't inherently understand what it's like to have the problem, and that's fine. So how do we get them to, then to understand? And the way you just described from an alcohol's an alcoholic or a drug abuser's standpoint of whether or not they're going to consume alcohol is completely different than somebody who doesn't have the issue. And part of it is, yeah, am I sticking out or am I different by not consuming? Um, and so actually that, that sets it up for one of the biggest recommendations I have around these things, um, particularly alcohol in the workplace and at events, is that I don't advocate a complete ban on it, and I'm not saying don't have the alcohol, but when nobody reflects what it's like to be a sober person or nobody is representing um, those who might have an issue, it's really difficult. So for me, and I think I wrote about this a little bit in the Vox article, but I I really struggled when I first became sober in a workplace that had a culture of alcohol with not having a reference point. I couldn't look around at anybody else and be like, this person isn't drinking because they're staying sober. I knew for a fact, just like you said, some people weren't drinking. I knew I could count on a couple fingers people who for a fact wouldn't drink at our events, but I didn't know what their story was and they never said, hey – Everybody, we're going to the bar, but I'm staying sober and I think that's fine. You know, they were just quiet about it and they didn't consume alcohol. Um, and so for me, it was this complete lack of a reference point on what sobriety was. And so I think that's something that we need to start complementing our language around drinking and our policies around drinking. I think we need to acknowledge the sobriety aspect as well. So I think an effective policy or an effective practice is if you're going to treat everybody to happy hour for a successful client or a successful project that you also say, Hey, 
we understand not everybody's drinking. We still want you to attend. We want you to enjoy seltzer water or soda and order whatever food you want off the menu in place of expensive drinks. And we really just want you there. Being sober is fine. And we're not going to ask you why. Like, I think for me, that would have been something that I was looking for was just this, what is it like to be sober at, at, one of these events, I need to feel like it's okay to be that person. And then I think that also starts to address what you said, which is, you know, I don't want to stick out as someone who's sober. When somebody else is willing to say it's okay to do that, you stop sticking out so much. So for me at my workplace, I've become the vocal person and I would feel really bad to find out if anybody felt like they had to have a beer because I'm the guy who's written articles and and (laughs) goes on podcasts and says, I am the sober guy and I, I embrace that role. I would like to see that at every workplace. I think it's responsible. Um, I don't know, Brett, what do you think? Does that I don't know. Strike you in any way as being something that is reasonable to ask or that yeah, would actually no, be it, effective? It does because I think, like you said, I mean, if the alcohol is working in that culture as part of an office or as part of a a business culture, you, you can't demand that it go away because you can't handle it. So right. being able to offer an alternative slash, you know, some kind of support for people who shouldn't or don't want to partake in that. I mean, even having a a keg of, you know, root beer next to the beer keg so that there's kind of a fun alternative and you get you feel like you're making a choice not giving up something or abstaining from something that everyone else seems to be doing. Mm-hmm. Like I think that that's probably the hardest. And for people that might not know they have an alcohol problem yet or might not have recognized how it's affecting their life, it it would offer a way for them to, uh, kind of to 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 be sober without feeling like they are rebelling against an existing system. Right, it might remove. I talk about it as like I felt sort of resentful when I couldn't drink anymore. You know, everyone else around me is still doing it. They're still smiling and laughing, and maybe they're drinking one beer, maybe they're drinking fifteen. But to me, I wanted to pour 15 down my throat and be like, ha ha, look, everybody, I can drink because I'm okay. And I wasn't anymore. And so it felt like my choice became be a part of things or don't. And you know, I withdrew and I didn't want to be a part of things until I started feeling more confident in my sobriety. Because that's another thing, particularly, I would say particularly in the beginning, but maybe it's always, your sobriety is a very... Uh, touchy thing and you you risk losing it at any time. And so when you're new to it, being in situations where you're unsure how you're going to react and you don't have that support system in place when you're standing in a bar with your colleagues that don't know you have an issue, that becomes, it's it's very intimidating to think about going into a situation like that. Mm -hmm. So I think that by having somebody... And it can be, you know, it should start at the top. It can be the person who is saying, let's have this event, should also say, people aren't expected to drink. If you come, we just want you to have a good time. We're not going to look at your glass and and ask you what's in it, (laughs) which is another thing that I I say in my articles is that it's, it's 
crap to ask people why they're not drinking. You're getting into so many other issues and so many other reasons besides having a problem with sobriety or having an, an alcohol issue when you ask people why they're not drinking that you're really you're, – you're uh, asking for trouble I think when you're – and I understand that there's like a very chummy – environment where people who know each other for 20 years know that you know Joe or Jill always drinks and so why aren't you drinking that that might sound like a question between friends but when it's a colleague at, at work really you know that's a loaded question because what you also could be asking is hey are you pregnant hey are you taking psychotic medications that won't work well with alcohol hey are you a recovering alcoholic um, I even heard a Cialis commercial the other day that said, don't consume alcohol while on Cialis. So it's a, it's a proxy question for, are you, do you have erectile dysfunction? <laughs> um, so just, just ask somebody that when you want to think about, should I ask somebody why they're not drinking? Insert, should I ask somebody if they have erectile dysfunction? And if you think that's an appropriate question to ask, then continue moving forward. But if you wouldn't ask the person who's standing next to you if they have erectile dysfunction, then you probably shouldn't ask them why they aren't drinking alcohol. I find it fun to, uh, to reverse the question and ask them why they are drinking. That's a good point. The answers, the answers range and vary, but they pretty much most people don't have an immediate response to that. Because <laughs> it's here. Can you imagine? I, I used to work in the fashion industry and photo shoots uh the photographers would tell us about the like late 80s and even into the mm -hmm. 90s when there were just like mixing bowls of cocaine oh my gosh in the middle of the room and it was it was like a keg except it was coke and i can't imagine me knowing my personality having lived through that era i would oh, not be wow. alive no <laughs> i just had a mental image of like myself <laughs> hanging from the ceiling by my own hands like face covered in white powder yeah just like, bloody nose yeah <laughs> i can't help myself and i won't try <laughs> that would be bad news and so imagine too then that there were people in that situation who were suffering or do and i always thought to myself how when you find out somebody who is super high functional is an addict like how how do you do that i felt my lowest of my lows when i was waking up hungover or waking up after having a night where I drank until I blacked out and waking up with things broken around me, including my relationships that like I dragged myself into work and I squeaked by. I don't know how people you know, write books, film films and do these things that we consider to be amazing achievements while suffering with abuse. Uh, I would say I, I've known several highly functional Addicts. I, I I walked my college graduation with a knee brace and a neck brace and a three year long heroin addiction, and I I passed with honors and like I could and I held jobs and toured with bands and yeah wow. homeless so, for a little bit but see like, you just <laughs> <laughs> you, you take the good with the bad I guess when you're when you're a mess from addiction but yeah you know it's just to me I. I felt like and I think that I I proved it out which is when I stopped drinking I did become much more highly functional. I I used to go to bed drunk and in my mind I would think A I'm not going to do this again tomorrow and then B 
the thing I was going to do would be right or start to build this um, reputation for having being a repository of knowledge. Like I wanted to produce information writing basically and I would always pass out thinking that and thinking tomorrow I'll start that and tomorrow I never started that. Tomorrow would come and by the second beer I would be ready for my seventh beer and my tenth beer and then back at it with the thoughts of, well, you know, I went too far tonight, but I can try again tomorrow. And really that was never going to happen. But once I started, once I stopped drinking, I reinvested that energy into writing and into being creative with my words and trying to put myself out there. And I experienced a lot of success that I really don't think would have ever happened. Did you experience during your first couple months of recovery after you made a firm decision to stop, did you experience feeling like your motivation wasn't getting better because you were still obsessed and and possibly state dependent you didn't know if you could do your job without the drug i certainly had a lot of um habits built in that i had to work around so one of them for me was like traveling i traveled for work quite a bit and the fringe benefit of that was getting to use the company card at the airport bar and so traveling and walking past the bar, I almost couldn't, you know, I yeah. almost, I couldn't think about how to do that. How would I get to the client site <laughs> when it meant going through the airport and not being able to get loaded before the flight and then have more when I got off if I wanted to, or how would I spend the night in a hotel on the road and not be just completely trashed before having to go into work the following morning. So yeah, definitely feeling like I had set my my productive routines were also set around drinking and, and something else that I did that I imagine a lot of people who abuse substances do is using alcohol as a reward. So get to three o'clock and produce this document or get the research done, interview everybody, and then you can get trashed. And so I had to also think of another way to figure out how to reward myself for being productive. Yeah. So did you, did you, were you able to build new habits, new structures? I think so. I mean, in the beginning, I would say the biggest thing for me was finding a support group. I needed to have Alcoholics Anonymous, which is what I was going to. Um, I don't currently attend anything and it's not because I have bad feelings or ill will that I know some people aren't into specifically AA because they feel like it's got some aspects that they're not happy about or that they don't subscribe to. For me, I needed to be surrounded by people who had these stories, who understood these stories. And so I attended a lot of AA meetings and that's another policy issue that I think workplaces need to think about, which is providing flexible schedules for people that need to attend support meetings because there was a lot of times where just due to the busyness of life, I wasn't going to be able to make a meeting in the evening, but I knew I didn't want to go a whole day without one. So I would take off at noon for a noon meeting at a local church or something. And for me in my situation, my employers weren't so overbearing that they made me account for every minute of the day. <laughs> but if you're running a cash register somewhere or if you're doing something where you are clocking in and out and you're closely monitored, I believe 
we still need to provide those people with the opportunity to seek support during the day, if especially when they're in the beginning of recovery because you're learning new things and you feel like you're the only person who's ever gone through this. Yeah. And it's horrible. Yeah. And, I, uh, I, I went to NA every day for a year and then mm-hmm. continued going at least twice a week for a few more years. Um, I'm not currently attending either. Uh, my psychiatrist has a lot of problems with that. Um, oh, really? <laughs> but I, yeah, we, that didn't end well. I, I, <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I went through rehab a few times and eventually then after rehab was kind of, um, encouraged to attend NA given mm-hmm. a list of meetings. And then I found out that I didn't need those rehabs at all. I just needed NA. I just needed a support group. Right. And, and it, you are like the beauty of it is that you're surrounded by people who are a lot like you. You don't have to be ashamed. You can talk about all the things that you've been hiding for so long and you can hear other people talk about them. And it builds this comfort level. And then people you can call when you're trying to rebuild those habits. Mm-hmm. Eventually I got to a point where I felt like I, I, I had learned what I needed to learn, and then there were interpersonal issues that I shouldn't have let bother me, but I did, and I continued to stay clean outside of it. So, um, so I'm kind of in the same boat as you. But the anonymity in the workplace thing is is another major thing. Like if you if you tell people they can sign up for break times to go to meetings, you're going to get a lot fewer people willing to take advantage of it because they have to tell you where they're going. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, so, and I, like, you have to, oh, you have to provide that like blanket free time. Yeah, you need to not be intrusive. Or if it's something that you think is problematic, you know, if somebody needs to be gone at a certain time that that does become an issue, there does have to be a discreet way of of handling that. I just think that right now where it stands is the assumption is no one goes to support group meetings during the day and that can't be true and healthy in 100% across the board so right. how do we start to make it in some way more socially acceptable i also don't love the anonymity about things i i think that obviously i've broken that i'm not somebody who is staying anonymous about my issues and I feel like that there needs to be some pushback on the stigma that's attached to it because, again, thinking that, look, I'm in this completely new space in my life in terms of productivity, in terms of the the voice that I have, not just around alcohol issues, but around my profession, that there could be thousands of people just like me who are waiting to thrive and we're not providing them with the support or the conditions that, that they need. And part of that is saying you have to keep hidden. You have to stay quiet about any issue you have. And and then you find, you know, people at the very top senior level positions are suffering from some of these issues and they're staying anonymous about it. And I don't know that it always does justice to the cause to, to keep completely quiet about it. I think it depends on the person and the situation because you could, if you're vocal, it, that you run the risk that your career becomes intertwined with your recovery publicly, such that it's actually defined by your, you know, your alcoholism or your addictions. Mm-hmm. And that can be, I think that can be intimidating. I think there are a lot of people who would rather 
be able to recover anonymously and then just excel. It's it's a catch-22 because you're right. Like someone, there needs to be a voice so that other people can be supported but anonymously. Right. And, you know, another thing that while you were saying that I thought of is um, you're right. It doesn't always need to be the person who is in recovery or who has the issue being the voice. Right. And so when I when I mentioned in the beginning that having this um, reference point for sobriety, it doesn't have to be the former lush like myself standing up and saying, I'm sober and I'm not going to drink at the bar, but I'm going to be there. It, it could be the person who's just going to say, I'm cool with not drinking on a Thursday night and I'm going to be there and anybody who else who doesn't feel like drinking, I'd like it if you showed up too because we're not going to be questioning why. And just having... I like so, that, yeah. But, but even further, it's like the more I've talked about this, I have gotten support from people who, um, you know, either through email or face-to-face conversations have said, I'm not the one with the problem, but alcohol affects me in X, Y, Z kind of way, and I support this. And so I know there are a lot of people out there who, whether it's been personal experiences in their childhood or significant others or a thousand other potential reasons that are willing to say, yeah, abuse of substances is a terrible thing, and I want to play whatever role I can in helping. So I think you're right in saying that a lot of people might not want to say they're the ones who are in recovery and have the issue. And so we need to look for allies then as well who are, are willing to say, like, I want everybody to succeed and I'm willing to be vocal about it because it's not going to reflect on me the same way it might somebody who actually has the issue. And I certainly was cognizant. I mean, I was terrified of what was going to happen when I wrote my first article about having an issue and it was actually for um, Model View Culture, which is like a critique, technology critique magazine that um, I had found, had published an article already about the importance of offering non-alcoholic beverages in general. And I, I thought, well, I want to take that one step further and say like this whole workplace culture, we need to talk about alcohol. But when I knew that that article was going to come out, I sat down with one of the principals where I work and I I had to tell him because the next week the article was going to be out and what I really wanted to ask was if he was okay with me associating myself with the business um and that was because they had been super supportive about everything I had been writing and in the end he was fine with that but what I really took away from when I sat down with him and and told him about the the article and and the issues I had been having was that he had had no idea I was experiencing any of that and he was really shocked and to me he was somewhat embarrassed I guess at the fact that he was able to work side by side with me and not know I was going through this really hellacious life stuff all the time Um, and so I think it points to how people who are experiencing an issue and who might want to be going into sobriety. Yeah, I can definitely understand that like we have this culture that says keep quiet about it and you don't want to experience negative ramifications. And and I did go through this turmoil of do I want to be vocal about it? And I decided for me that I had to say something because 
I knew all about what I'd gone through and I knew that I didn't see any real respect for that reflected in the cultures that I was seeing in our design studios and and in our tech firms. So I guess the last thing that I would toss into this particular conversation is my frustration with uh, medical insurance and addiction and recovery. Um, I, I know that there are supposed to be protections for people who need to seek counseling and treatment, but in my experience, Everything I've ever done through any medical center or through state-run facility has shown up on my insurance history. And it has made it, now I've been working independently, I did it a stint a few years back too, and getting personal insurance with that on your record, Mm -hmm. it it can be horrible. There was one point where I was paying $900 a month for my own single premium with a $10,000 deductible because I had been to treatment once six years before. That's something that definitely should be addressed. It seems I've not experienced it with, with having to insure myself. And well, I don't think you should be penalized at all. Even if it were on your record, I don't think that going through recovery should be a mark against you. No, absolutely not. It seems like it would be more positive than saying (laughs) I'm I'm an active abuser or I, I'm going to, do something else that might cause that to happen. But I don't, I think for me, I don't like the idea of, of tracking in general when it comes to mental health issues or sobriety issues because of the stigma that we've attached. And as long as that's there, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the fact that it comes up in any situation, but when it, when you place a financial barrier on top of everything else, to somebody getting treatment, it also seems very um, backwards in my mind to what we really want to be accomplishing as a society, which is if you are going to have these environments where people encounter alcohol and possibly drug use or whatever, that and that's so easily available, why aren't we making treatment and healthcare so easily available for these same people. Um, it's really because of one... America. <laughs> well, then that's the best way to end that conversation. <laughs> Damn it. Um, well, you know, I think that something I personally experienced while I, d- I haven't had the, the same issues that, that you brought up was that I just found that through counseling in particular, Nobody accepted the insurance that I had, and, and the insurance itself touted itself as being, you know, we provide, uh, they call it behavioral health services, and it's covered at X percent. Well, you have to find someone to accept the insurance to have it be worth anything, and I ended up paying out of pocket for every kind of counseling that I went through, and um, on the reverse, my income looked high on paper, and so I paid the full <laughs> amount for any provider that gave it uh, services on a sliding scale. And so I, I wouldn't want to be in the opposite situation where I'm jobless and court ordered to be getting treatment. But at the same time, we have to find this, you have, you're rebuilding your whole life when you're starting to seek treatment or seek sobriety. And it's really, it's a whole holistic approach. You're rebuilding your work, your personal, your social behaviors, possibly the people you hang out with, 
you're you're re-socializing yourself. It's really backwards to put any kind of barrier to that situation when somebody has decided they want to commit the effort to finding sobriety. And I agree. All right. Is there anything you want to add before we switch to top three picks? Um, nope. I'm I'm good. Uh, I mean, just if you are somebody who thinks you have a problem or if you're trying to find sobriety, there are a lot of resources out there. Use Google the way it's meant to be used and Google <laughs> some terms that will help you. You can always um, – I know my information will be in the show notes – Reach out to me. I, I can't be anybody's personal counselor, but I certainly will respond to any personal messages I get with a personal response and you know, anything I can do to provide somebody with support or information. I'm certainly open to that. All right. So top three picks then. Um, it goes back and forth one at a time and you get to start. Oh man, this is the toughie. So I, I'm hoping that I can I can keep the listeners happy. I'm I already told you before the show that I'm definitely not the most cutting edge person. So some of these might not be too exciting, but hopefully they will be. And that's enough of a caveat. So the first one is the one that at least got my gamer friends talking last week. I think it was when Xbox has said that they're going to be doing some cross platform gaming in the future. Um, we play a lot of sports games, uh, particularly FIFA here where I work. Um, and so the thought of playing your PS4 friends on your Xbox One becoming a reality soon is, is definitely exciting. I, I didn't know about that, but that's probably because I don't play games. Oh, yeah. Well, the Xbox, so Microsoft, has been sort of opposed to or at least has not allowed cross-platform online gaming to, to happen, um, whereas PlayStation has really had that at some level for, for quite a long time. And, and then at the CES, um, Xbox said that's going to be in their future. So it's going to be a real deal where you can own a PlayStation and, and play against somebody who's got an Xbox. So, I mean, the concept seems simple to me. Uh, when, um, when PlayStation did it before, what other platforms did they support? I think it was PC gaming as well. Okay. So you could like because it's most of that's going to happen in like an online context. Yeah, where... for sure. Nice. All right. I I wish I had more to say about that, but <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about that, but I was trying to come up with something fun for the show. Come on. I bought an Xbox with yeah. a Connect and it was fun for I think I played it maybe over the last 3 years probably total 3 hours. It's not your fault if you have a life. <laughs> I just I I prefer to be actively creating something if I'm going to be in front of a screen, which is why everyone said I would enjoy Minecraft, but I never got into it. I would I'm just in rather the same be boat. Coding than playing someone else's code. There you go. And I I mean, although I used that as in my first pick, um, I game only at work. I I own a PlayStation 3 and it's covered in dust. I actually used to say I own a PlayStation 3 and I've played it three times, but it's the same thing. When I'm at home, I would feel disappointed if I realized I had gone a whole week without writing anything, but I had instead been sitting in front of a screen playing a video game. So I, I really do choose to use my screen time to create as well. And so more power to you. And, and that's definitely, I think, the best way to spend it is is being creative. That sounds to me like the new I only smoke when I drink. 
Uh, yeah. I only game when I work. <laughs> I only game when I work because we have FIFA here, and it is somewhat <laughs> druggish. It's like... You well, wanna... yeah, there should be a, a good video game should have a, an intermittent reward system that's almost equivalent to drugs and alcohol. It's how Vegas works. Yeah. Well, for me, it's just beating a coworker. Like, if I can beat somebody, then I can own the day. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, my first pick is... Okay, so it's called Slice. It's an app on iPhone and probably other platforms. And I have some major privacy concerns with it right now. But it's the convenience it provides is currently outweighing that for me. Uh, what it does is it watches your email for shipping notifications. So anytime I make like an Amazon order or anything that gets shipped via any of the major carriers, it will detect tracking numbers and automatically add them to a list of current purchases and shipments and things like that. Um, and then will give me notifications on my watch and my phone saying, oh, your UPS package is out for delivery. It's been delivered. And um, That's pretty perfect. It is. Uh, I, I've always used an app called Deliveries. I think it used to be called Packages, but it's called Deliveries now. And that one, you have to manually enter tracking numbers, and it does the same thing. But the beauty of Slice is that I don't even have to think about it. I make the order, and then my watch just knows. So that 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 is nice. I think my wife would definitely be one who she's she is the Amazon purchaser in our family. <laughs> and so although we know pretty much with Prime it's gonna arrive the next day or two, but um trying to keep track of all that, that sounds good. Yeah, if you order more than like one thing over a couple days from Amazon, it's still nice to know. <laughs> I tend to forget. Especially yeah. with small like I ordered a six inch cast iron skeleton and then forgot I ordered it. And- <laughs> It was going to take a while to ship because it wasn't eligible for Prime, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so on to you, number two. All right. My second one is not technology at all. I guess it could be kind of technology is, um, but due to the season, and Brett, you can tell me if this doesn't appeal to you, but it's March Madness, so anyone who's a college basketball fan is super aware of that. Um, So my second pick is just brackets being busted. Uh, and that's what mine is. My bracket has been busted after the first round of the NCAA tournament. And um, we have a pool at work through the CBS Sports um, app. And uh, I'm completely out of the running for anything as three of the teams that I picked to make the Final Four have already lost. I'm going to admit that I really – I know that March Madness has to do with basketball. And I know – what a bracket is. I know how brackets work. <laughs> but that's about the extent of me having any idea what you're talking about right now. All right. College basketball, teams winning and losing. That's all. Cal- isn't college basketball where like the players don't get paid, but the coaches make millions? Yes, that's the sport. Yeah, and so I'm pretty sure players... that's college football, too. I think that's college yes, sports. Yes, that's all college sports, definitely. <laughs> that That is billion-dollar industries. I think and... they do pay the lacrosse teams. Really? No, I'm totally making that. No, that would be weird. (laughs) They could pay him what they take in for ticket sales, and then that might break even. I don't know. For lacrosse? I don't know. (laughs) Field hockey? Um, Yes. Yeah, no, it's going to uh, snow 10 inches here tonight, so that's my March Madness. Wow. That's horrible. That is horrible. It's 60 degrees right now and sunny, and it's going to shift and snow 10 inches by morning. I'm not jealous of that situation. Me either. It's a, it's it'll mess your head up pretty bad when it's been 
top down weather with your convertible for a week and then you have to shovel. Yeah. yeah. All right. So my number two, uh, I, I think I've mentioned Meister task before it's a uh, project management, uh, online and iOS application, uh, from the people who make MindMeister, which is my all time favorite mind mapping application. And they just announced integration with Zapier, which is kind of like, um, I guess you would say it's a more business class version of IFTTT. So you can then tie in hundreds of different web applications and services into your Meister task boards, which are kind of like Trello boards. It's this very Kanban style board, but then you can tie in like GitHub and mail and just about any service you want to, to cause events and notifications within Meister task. So that is a huge, like just adding integration with Zapier suddenly makes it like a hundred times more useful. I feel like your picks are all about, you know, useful stuff and, and mine are just, it's called a rounded episode. Uh, it's well all rounded right. because I'm really going to bring up the rear with another <laughs> terribly it, useless. It's awesome because you're pick. picking things that I would never. So if people need to hear about <laughs> it, you know, I hope so. If not, then I guess, you know, maybe everybody press pause. And anyway, so my third pick, it is tech based. Um, I, I, and I spent some time this weekend actually using it. It, Killing time with my wife. It is Masquerade, which is an app for swapping your face with somebody else. Um, so you just have to get yourself and whoever you want to swap faces with in view of the camera on your phone. And it'll show you what you would look like with that person's features around your facial features. So um, I was able to see what I would look like with my wife's hair and chin. And she and able to see what she would look like with my beard and baldness. And and basically we both laughed until we cried and then sent them to our friends and family who also probably laughed until they cried and sent us back text messages that said they probably wouldn't want to know us if we looked like that. So I'm I'm looking this up because I've used the I think it's just called face swap that kind of <laughs> made the rounds a while back and just seeing now that facebook bought masquerade oh did they okay so is this is it on ios is it uh yeah we were using it on ios this weekend um so it was yeah msqrd yeah um so but there's there's a mode where you you can also like do your own face and do all this weirdness to it but the the true beauty was swapping faces with my wife and just seeing how atrocious of a creature I would be and, and she would be with my features yeah. and being glad that we kept our own features <laughs> in the end. I, I did. I, I had fun with the, the, the app, ver the version of it that I'm thinking of the face swap. Um, you could like take a picture of say Donald Trump and okay. then put your face into it and it would pinpoint like the, areas of your face and map them appropriately to the image and it could also do the live swap so like you could stand next to someone and it would swap your faces so it sounds like pretty much the same thing yeah it is um it just was something I'm gonna my have wife to look it up saw on facebook probably um <laughs> and then downloaded and we were we were literally sitting in the car killing time because we have a one-year-old and she fell asleep and sometimes what you don't want to do is move a one-year-old when she's finally down for a nap 
And so we sat in a parking lot at a grocery store swapping faces with each other for an hour and just laughing until we cried. One sec, I have to add this to my list of reasons not to have kids. <laughs> okay. Um, Dude, that list has to be so long that any sane person, even <laughs> any, any insane person, will look at that list and be like, nope. Yes, but but, but it only takes it anyway. one one decision to, and then <laughs> people who have kids are like, oh no, you'll change your mind about all that. Just have a kid, and I, I think, no, I'm good. You'll love sitting in a grocery store parking lot, <laughs> face swapping with your wife. That's why they make these apps. Getting, getting the only hour long reprieve from your daughter for the day. <laughs> Sounds amazing. All right. So my last pick is one that I've actually been using for a while and realized I don't think I've ever mentioned. It's the Swipe keyboard for iOS, S-W-Y-P-E. There are a couple like this, but I love that I can just drag my finger around between the letters of a word and it figures out without having to tap each letter. I just swipe between them and it figures out what word it should be and it's extremely accurate. Um, and it can combine with predictive text and everything, uh, kind of default features of the keyboard. And that's that feature to me, Android's had that for a long time. Like that's been available on Android. And mm -hmm. it was just last year, uh, when custom keyboards became feasible, is that two years now? But, um, but yeah, to be able to do that is so much easier for me than trying to type on a phone with carpal tunnel syndrome. It definitely sounds like it's worth looking into. I was wondering about the accuracy on most of those keyboards. So you say yeah. that one actually is highly it, accurate. It's really actually very amazing how sometimes I'll feel like I only hit half the letters I meant to, and it figures out exactly what I meant. Do you find yourself thinking the words then in just those letters when later on, like even if you're not typing them? like No, it hasn't really. I haven't developed any major, like the word the. I do have like a, a muscle memory for that kind of just quick swipe, but uh, I use Launch Bar all day, every day. So everything I when I think of an app name, I do think of it, especially if it's an inner caps app name. Mm -hmm. I always think of the two inner caps letters. Gotcha. <laughs> that's how I that's how I get to everything. So I guess yeah, that is part of my my uh, my process. But yeah, well, that, sound, that sounds that sounds much more that. useful than face swapping but hey you have really practical picks something for everyone right i hope so i think the same people who would want to swipe on their keyboard would probably enjoy swapping their face and bracket busting sure <laughs> i'm sure there's a venn diagram intersection there definitely it's just really tiny <laughs> <laughs> all right well, this has been great. Thanks for coming and thanks for talking honestly about something that I think affects our, especially workplaces, more than ever right now. Well, I appreciate you having me on and helping me to spread the message. And hopefully, you know, some of your listeners will find some benefit in this. And, and yeah, I just, the more I can do, the more it validates the fact that I'm making a choice. And it's about me being accountable as well. It holds me accountable. I can't very well talk about this stuff if I'm not practicing what I preach and, and sticking with my own sobriety. So it helps me in the end too. So I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. And you can be found at Victor Yako, V I C T O R Y O C C O dot com and the same Victor Yako on Twitter and elsewhere. 
I'll put yes. a link to the new upcoming book in the show notes. Did you have a promo code you wanted me to include? Yes, I will be sharing a promo code that will get you 39% off the cover price of the book. And I'll just toss that your way for the show notes as well. Excellent. And uh, I am Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com and ttscoff everywhere else. So thanks for listening, and thank you, Victor. Thanks, Britt. Bye, everyone. And we'll see everyone soon.